Welcome to the show. I think that a lot of our listeners might have, well, had their interest peaked. Uh, their ears kind of went, whoa, wait a second, did I hear that right? On the news report last week that the Attorney General of Massachusetts had approved a bylaw in the town, and I believe Island as well, of Nantucket, saying that the beaches in that town, I assume starting now, but eh, I think more probably there'll be more of this come warmer weather, the beaches of Nantucket are now topless per that bylaw passed by the town meeting of the town of Nantucket. The Attorney General's opinion approving the bylaw, and we'll tell you in just a second why the Attorney General was involved at all, uh, notes the submission by the American Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts, a legal brief in the form of a letter uh, written by staff attorney for the ACLU of Massachusetts, Jessica Lewis, who is with us today to explain to us what the Attorney General did, what the people of Nantucket did, and what the ACLU of Massachusetts had to say uh, in a, a legal argument that I thought was really compelling. Jessica Lewis, welcome to the show. We're so pleased to have you. As we noted, Jessica Lewis is a staff attorney with the ACLU of Massachusetts, therefore is my colleague. So in the nature of disclosure, we both work for the same organization. Jessica Lewis, thank you so very much for being here with us. Tell us what the Attorney General did and maybe go back and just tell us the story of what the people of Nantucket did that got the Attorney General uh, involved. Help us with this story. Well, thank you and good morning for having me. Um, like you said, the town and county of Nantucket recently, uh, during their annual meeting, uh, passed a bylaw that would allow for toplessness on the beaches, private and public, uh, in the town and county uh, for all genders. Uh, the driving motivation behind this law, as articulated by the uh, supporters, particularly the person who was advancing the law, Ms. Dorothy Stover, um, was that its female body should not be uh, regulated differently from men. Uh, the bylaw once passed needed to be approved by the Attorney General's office. Uh, what they did was check for any conflicts between the local bylaw and state law, and they decided that there was no sharp conflict between the two statutes that would presumably could regulate uh, female toplessness, which would be the indecent exposure law, uh, as well as the open and gross lewdness law. Uh, neither uh, statute has actually been applied against female breasts. Now, the attorney general was reviewing this bylaw passed by the town meeting of the town of Nantucket, which is its governing body. Uh, that is a normal and regular process set out by Massachusetts law with regard to town bylaws, yes? That's correct. And the attorney general, go back and do that for us a little bit more English, a little less legalese. What does it mean that the attorney general is looking for conflicts in, with the law or to, trying to determine and is obligated to determine whether there are any conflicts? Explain that to us and for us a little bit, please. Sure. I will try, although I would say I spend a lot of my time around lawyers, so I'm not sure if I understand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, it is an occupational hazard. I grant you that. <laughs> Uh, so by law, once a bylaw is passed, uh, it goes before the attorney general's office for approval. Uh, here, there is a statute in Massachusetts, Massachusetts sorry, 
called the Home Rule Act, which basically says that towns uh, and municipalities can pass laws as long as there is no sharp conflict with state law or the legislator has not actually precluded any kind of uh, laws in that area. I hear that what's basically what the Attorney General's office was looking for, whether or not there was something already passed by the legislator that would actually prevent uh, the town of Nantucket from passing this law. And they ultimately decided that there was nothing. And so having found no conflict with Massachusetts law or the Massachusetts Constitution, the Attorney General approved the bylaw, uh, not on its content. The Attorney General takes no position on the content, but does rule on whether or not the bylaw is legal, that is not inconsistent with state law or the state constitution. So their letter was very clear that their job was not to uh, create policies or pass judgment on whether or not they think that this law is a good idea. Their job is only to look for any conflicts in the law. Well, that's a good division to keep in mind. The attorney general is not ruling on the uh, merits or the policy behind the, the bylaw. The attorney general is just approving the bylaw. And by the law, well, by the way, that's just for for towns. Uh, cities uh, don't have that same uh, obligation or the law does not cover uh, ordinances passed by cities. It just covers bylaws passed by towns. Is that right? I would take your word for it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, I swear that's true. Um, let me let me ask you this because I think it's interesting uh, that you uh, point out uh, that the attorney general emphasized I'm not making any decision or judgment with regard to the merits and the benefits or detriments of this bylaw. I'm just ruling on whether or not it's legal. However, the town very much debated the merits of this bylaw and said, yes, uh, a bylaw that regulates our beaches and under the Home Rule Amendment, which you mentioned, towns have the authority to regulate their beaches. Um, Under this bylaw, uh, uh, toplessness is an actual benefit for the town. It's a good thing. Could you explain what the arguments were pro and against, for and against this bylaw and how they were resolved by the town meeting of the town of Nantucket? Yeah, so I would say uh, that debate actually was a beautiful display of just local democracy. Uh, The fact that people were able to just stand up and really voice their opinions. And ultimately, it was passed by a vote of, I think, 327 to 242. Um, But the debates for uh, actually gender equality on beaches were that we should not uh, put additional restraints on females that we do not actually put on males. Um, and then also there is a lot of questions. I don't actually don't remember if this argument was advanced, but in our opinion, there's a lot of questions about how do you determine uh, what a female body is. When you look at court cases, a lot of uh, the arguments around what makes a female body different from a male body such that you can put uh, particular restraints on female bodies or how do you make that determination. Uh, and then the debates against the law were basically that we are uh, – endangering the morals of our children, and that we, uh, it would be too salacious uh, to put Nantucket, uh, which someone really pointed out, they even regulate the color of their shingles for a town like Nantucket to allow for female uh, toplessness. I would just degrade the morals of the community. 
they really do regulate the color of the shingles. That's that's true. Yes. Now we have it for certain colors, uh, but uh, the person who was supporting the law basically stood up and said, "Well, I'm not a shingle," which I just thought was a great line. So l- let me ask you this: the uh, uh, attorney general determines that the bylaw is not inconsistent with Massachusetts law or the Constitution, but let's look at the laws for a moment because uh, everyone is going to be on notice. No one's going to be shocked um, if they were to see a female breast on the beach of the beaches of Nantucket because, well, everyone knows and therefore that is, takes this kind of behavior outside of the Massachusetts criminal law and the towns have the right to authorize it. That was the Attorney General's uh, analysis. Do I have that right? Yes. Okay. So uh, you wrote a I, – I thought it was a brilliant argument for the attorney general um, setting forth the position uh, of the ACLU, was it? Did you write on behalf of the ACLU of Massachusetts or did you write on behalf of the client, uh, some client? Uh, the ACLU. Okay. So the ACLU of Massachusetts, that's the state affiliate of the American Civil Liberties Union, uh, files a brief which uh, by – uh, tradition uh, is in the form of a letter to the attorney general, but it's a, it is a legal brief as a practical matter. Um, and you set forth arguments that I thought were very compelling and didn't necessarily show up in the attorney general's uh, uh, decision, but I thought it was a really quite brilliant legal argument. And I wish you would share that with our listeners, please. Sure. So one of our arguments outside of the fact that there is no sharp conflict uh, with state law is that what they're doing here would actually advance the equal protection of the law when we're talking about gender equality. Um, for that reason, there were two basically principles. One is that in order to pass a law that would regulate female bodies, especially, you would actually have to determine what a female body is or what that means. And because right now we are more and more understanding uh, the nature of gender and that is not really a binary how do you determine or who gets to make the determination of what a female body looks like? And then we looked at court laws for which were uh, cities actually advancing arguments for how do you determine what a female body is? Uh, and some of the arguments that were passed were basically that female uh, breasts are seen as a sex symbol or that they can produce milk. And then one of the questions is, well, if you use that as a standard, well, you have to look at a body and say, does your breast produce milk? or am I aroused by your breasts and therefore now you're subject to special regulation and to have that kind of uh, irrationality embedded in law uh, would both make that law very vague and also uh, put certain people or certain genders at heightened risk of criminal sanction, uh, which would go against uh, equal protection. The opinion of the attorney general actually didn't uh I think may very well have been persuaded uh, uh, by the argument, but the attorney general's decision was more limited. And I think that that from the attorney general's point of view, uh, she uh, had to determine only this one thing, which is, is the bylaw inconsistent or not with the laws and constitution? So she didn't have to get to your equal protection argument Although it runs through the decision, that that consideration, I think, is really present. Does that make you feel as if these arguments were given weight? 
I hope so. Uh, we understood basically that it's going to come down to a question of uh, basically if they can uh, allow this law based on state law. However, we also understood that people uh, were objecting to the law um, on policy reasons such as uh, moral standards, et cetera. So we did also want to weigh in on the fact that no, when you're looking at this issue, what you're looking at is a gender equality issue and that's something to keep in mind. And so we're hopeful and very grateful for the Attorney General that they did allow this law and we assume and hope uh, that the equal protection arguments were in the back of their mind. I would like to clarify one aspect of this. The, the, this bylaw and the approval by the Attorney General doesn't say that any town with beaches has to have a bylaw like this. It simply says that if a town wants to pass, has beaches and therefore has under the Home Rule Amendment the authority to regulate its beaches, this is one way in which a town may, if it decides to, uh, allow the, uh, toplessness on its beaches, but it doesn't have to, and there's no obligation in that regard. Um, so how broad or how important in terms of behaviors and uh, do you think this decision actually is? I, I think it's important um, in the sense that if people are on beaches and they, um, well, I, absolutely it's very important in Nantucket. And it's very important, especially uh, for people who want to mobilize around this issue, especially in the realm of gender equality, like we see uh, a coalition in Massachusetts called Free the Nipple, uh, who have brought uh, lawsuits in other states, uh, allowing for female toplessness in public, which is actually allowed in some cities. Uh, this will hopefully bolster their arguments even more that they should be allowed in public uh, the same kind of um, freedom that men have is different, though, because a beach, you can have a sign. This is a topless beach. Therefore, if you don't want to be here, you don't have to be here. Whereas um, topless in a city where someone might come across a uh, person who's topless without expecting it, um, that is going to be a much more difficult legal argument because there, there, there could be uh, someone taking offense at that, for example. We are speaking with Jessica Lewis. She is a staff attorney with the American Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts. She submitted the ACLU's brief, the ACLU's brief to the Attorney General in support of the bylaw of Nantucket, which allows persons to go topless on their beaches beginning, well, now, a little chilly now, but I think more obviously prevalent next summer. We're going to continue our conversation with Attorney Jessica Lewis right after this. right? It's the number Whalen Insurance got when we opened in 1961. It's still our number more than 60 years later. If you need an insurance quote or have a claim, just call 586-1000. We answer the phone, ready to help. That's our pledge to you, until now. Now when you call, we'll answer, and if it's something clerical or routine, like an address change, we're going to transfer you to the Arbella Insurance Call Center in Quincy. You'll be connected with a real person there, too. You won't be entering your policy number on the dial pad. The Arbella Call Center. I told myself Whalen Insurance would never do this, but insurance agent friends all over New England tell me it actually works really well. So we're going to try it. And if it doesn't work well, I'm sure you'll let us know by calling 
1000. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. In partnership with Arbella Insurance. One thing I like about working at ServiceNet is that in addition to being a manager, I can still be a clinician. If you're a licensed mental health clinician who wants to make your own hours while also being part of a progressive community mental health team, join us at ServiceNet. For people working private practice who want to also still have a commitment to community mental health, working at ServiceNet gives them the opportunity to do both at the same time. Go to the employment page at servicenet.org. In this the season of thanks and giving, United Way of Franklin and Hampshire Region wants to remind you to support the organizations and people who are doing the hard work of making our community a better place. Please consider supporting a local nonprofit with a tax-deductible gift this December. If you're not sure how to help, go to uw-fh.org to find a list of United Way vetted partner agencies. The United Way of the Franklin and Hampshire Region asks you to help make the Valley a happier, healthier, and more equitable place for everyone. Some people know how to prepare seafood. Seafood's delicate. You don't want a heavy hand. Some people have the touch. Some of those people are in the kitchen at Paul and Elizabeth's Restaurant, where there's a 40-year tradition of preparing seafood, wisdom passed along through the years. That's why when you have fish and chips at Paul and Elizabeth's, or Faroe Island salmon, or tempura shrimp with that light and lively orange ginger sauce, it's perfect every time. Fresh seafood, Paul and Elizabeth's, inside Thorns in downtown Northampton. Want to support the kind of local talk you hear on The Bill Newman Show? Want to hear your business's message here on WHMP? Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. We'll help you craft a marketing message that'll reach listeners of your favorite WHMP show. And we'll be supporting the local news, valley talk, and progressive voices you hear right here on WHMP. Let us know about your message. Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. And add your message to our mission. And hear your message right here on WHMP. Your message at whmp.com. We continue our conversation with ACLU of Massachusetts staff attorney Jessica Lewis, who wrote the ACLU's brief to the attorney general in support of the uh, legality of the bylaw of Nantucket, which permits toplessness on beaches. Does not require toplessness, of course, but tells people they have that right and tells everyone else on the beach that they might encounter topless people of whatever gender. Um, So... I, okay, I think that everyone knows this, but I'll make the disclosure again that I have been a, an attorney with the ACLU of Massachusetts for, I don't know, 35 years, and Jessica Lewis is a colleague of mine there. I think that is disclosure, uh, I hope. And what one thing that I do for the ACLU <clears throat> um, uh, is I write and record these Civil Liberties Minutes, and I did one about this issue, about this case, and if with a little luck, we're going to be able to listen to it now. Dan Torres, can you see if you can miraculously make that appear on your computer screen? What does a town bylaw that permits going topless on the beaches teach us about democracy? I'm Bill Newman, and this is the Civil Liberties Minute. In May 2022, Nantucket, Massachusetts passed the Gender Equality on Beaches bylaw. That bylaw does exactly what its name indicates. It allows everyone to go topless on the beaches in that town if they want to. Of course, anyone can wear a top, and everyone is on notice that some people on the beach, regardless of gender, may not be wearing a top. In Massachusetts, new town bylaws are subject to review by the state attorney general to determine if they comply with the state constitution and state law. 
In early December, the Massachusetts Attorney General ruled that the bylaw legally was just fine. As the longtime town resident who proposed the bylaw explained, this is righting a wrong, allowing the space for all bodies to be topless and catching up to what was already legal for men. But it wasn't always so. Indeed, until the late 1930s, it was a crime in most states and cities for men to go topless, to expose their nipples, even on a beach. A crime for men. Obviously, that changed. Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis famously wrote that in our federal system, states are the laboratories of democracy. Similarly, for states, local governments, as here, can function as laboratories of democracy and equality. The Civil Liberties Minute is made possible by the ACLU because freedom can't protect itself. Toplessness used to be, um, through the 1930s, used to be illegal for men. Was that part of your argument uh, to the attorney general with regard to the equality issue that's present here in the bylaw? It wasn't part of our argument, but the proponent of law, uh, Ms. Dorothy Stover, actually brought that up during the public debate. The fact that I think it was in New York, even man, I think she said 42 men were actually arrested or 42 people were actually arrested for protesting the toplessness ban against man. Um, so, yeah. What would you- what is your view with regard to whether or not there's going to be a lot of pushback on, on this or the view of the uh, persons and the proponents of this on Nantucket? I, I, so public pressure, I think, may ultimately play a role in whether or not uh, the law actually has any effect in terms of people's behavior on the beach. Um whether or not people are actually comfortable being toplessness or being topless on beaches. I think what's important, though, is the fact that they're allowed to uh, to have a special restriction by law on your body. I think it's a particular harm whether or not you then act upon your freedom as your own personal choice. But I think both the town and the AG made clear that this is now your personal choice uh, about whether or not you're actually going to be on a beach uh, without your bathing suit. Right. And it's also uh, incorporates the important concept of notice, which is everyone knows you can't be shocked. Oh, my gosh, there's toplessness in Nantucket because um, the notices are out. Um, the signage will be there. Everyone will know. I, I'm wondering um, if you might share this and if you can't, don't, um, about how the ACLU gets involved in an issue like this. So uh, I actually don't remember the nexus of this particular uh, issue. I, obviously, people do call in uh, with the concerns. I, I do remember one particular person who called in about the issue of uh, female toplessness and the fact that there should not be special bans on our bodies. Um, and then that is a particular interest of mine, so something I was looking out for. And obviously, this issue was greatly covered uh, and the news, and we were aware that people were writing out to the attorney general's office about not allowing this law on policy grounds. Do you see this, uh, I don't want to call it a fight, but do you see this uh, approval by the attorney general and the effort that was made in Nantucket and the uh, bylaw that was uh, uh, advocated for by uh, uh, Dorothy Stover and others do you see that this is part of a bigger movement and a larger issue? 
I think that it should be. <laughs> I don't know uh, that it exactly is, especially, again, as we move further and further away from uh, imposing a, a binary on gender, uh, we should reexamine uh, our laws and whether or not they actually do kind of codify the idea that there are only two ways of looking at bodies and that female bodies should therefore have special restrictions uh, based on antiquated notions of what gender is and who females are. Uh, which is an important equal protection argument that court, at least one court actually did look at about whether or not when you're banning topless for females, you're codifying stereotypes uh, and old versions or old notions of uh, who a female should be or is. I, I asked this, <clears throat> was about to be my final question of authors often, and uh, but, but also other, other professionals who have had a... Uh, really interesting experience. Um, and that is, <clears throat> did you uh, find that this experience of thinking through these issues, of writing this brief for the Attorney General, of setting forth the position of the ACLU, whether you found any lessons there that you hadn't expected to find? I, so... I think that uh, one of the or issues or maybe lessons were, um, I mean, obviously it is true that at least for uh, some women, our bodies actually do look different. And then whether or not are thinking through uh, the ability of the law to take that difference into account um, and how courts have actually grappled with that issue and then how we should be looking at that issue um, I think what's kind of the lesson, obviously, biology does create some uh, difference in whether or not the ability or the extent to which the law can uh, impose restrictions based on that uh, difference. Yeah, I, I think that one of the lessons here is that uh, notwithstanding <clears throat> what the Supreme Court of the United States is doing to federal law and the federal constitution, that lawmakers in the state and, and using our state constitution and our state laws can protect freedom uh, even when and in times, not saying that the Supreme Court cares one way or the other about nudity, but in general, of course, the Supreme Court is just cutting back and cutting back and uh, taking a machete to our rights. And here in Massachusetts, that's not happening uh, under our state laws. And so there is still an avenue for freedom and equality to prevail. Actually, like that lesson way better than mine, so I'm gonna I'm gonna adopt it. <laughs> For your next interview, you got it. It's all yours. Yeah. We've been speaking with Jessica Lewis. She is a staff attorney with the American Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts. She wrote the ACLU's brief to the Attorney General in support of the Nantucket bylaw that permits toplessness on its beaches. Congratulations, congratulations on this victory. Congratulations to the Attorney General for making the decision. And thank you, Jessica Lewis, for the great piece of legal work and for being with us today. Thank you. Get in on the conversation. Call 413-586-7140. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Good morning, I'm Jess Tyler. Northampton High School now has a new principal after a month-long search. William Worley will assume the role beginning January 3rd. 
Worley brings more than 30 years of experience to the job and was former principal at Pioneer Valley Regional School and vice principal at Amherst Regional High School. Worley replaces Lori Valiancourt, who resigned following an internal investigation. A Hampshire County Superior Court judge rejected an involuntary manslaughter plea from a former Amherst man charged with the death of his infant son. Isaac Villalobos offered to change his plea from not guilty to guilty with three charges being dropped. Judge Richard Carey said it would be a quantum leap from evidence prosecutors presented to meet the burden of proof. The infant died after being given adult sleep medication in the early morning hours of September 15, 2019. A status hearing is scheduled for December 28th. Holyoke Mayor Josh Garcia says the city expects to have ShotSpotter up and running by January for a two-year test run. ShotSpotter is meant to improve police response time to violent crimes, but critics say that the technology can cause some communities to have more of a heightened police presence. I very much agree with the concern. I, I never want to over-police any neighborhood or community. For the next two years, ShotSpotter will be funded by a grant called Project Safe Neighborhoods through the U.S. Attorney's Office, as well as ARPA funds. If the city of Holyoke decides to keep ShotSpotter after the two-year test run, they will have to fund it using other sources. Hi, I'm Nick Oresco. After a cold start, temperatures this afternoon will be seasonable with highs in the upper 30s to near 40 under mostly sunny skies. Mostly clear tonight with lows back down to the teens to low 20s. I'm Nick Oresco on 101.5 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. En medio de un aumento de la retórica de odio y la violencia, el presidente Joe Biden formó el lunes un nuevo grupo interinstitucional para desarrollar una estrategia nacional para combatir el antisemitismo, anunció la Casa Blanca. La acción llega en un momento en que prominentes figuras públicas están difundiendo vitriolo antijudío. Dirigido por los Consejos de Política Nacional y Seguridad Nacional de la Casa Blanca, el nuevo grupo consultará con líderes comunitarios, funcionarios gubernamentales, legisladores y activistas activistas mientras redacta una estrategia nacional para afrontar el antisemitismo y la negación del holocausto. La acción sigue al compromiso público de Biden de sanar el alma de la nación después de ver grupos de odio marchando en Charlottesville, Virginia con antorchas y esvásticas en 2017, un episodio que impulsó su carrera por la Casa Blanca. En otras informaciones, la Corte Suprema de Estados Unidos accedió el lunes a escuchar la apelación del presidente Joe Biden de la decisión de un juez que declaró ilegal su plan para cancelar miles de millones de dólares en deuda estudiantil, atendiendo el asunto junto con otro desafío a la política que los jueces deben escuchar en los próximos meses. Los jueces considerarán la apelación de la administración de Biden a la decisión del juez federal de distrito Mark Pickman con sede en Texas en un desafío respaldado por un grupo de defensa conservador, el segundo de dos fallos de tribunales inferiores que congelaron la política de alivio de la deuda de Biden. El 1 de diciembre, la Corte Suprema dijo que escucharía argumentos sobre la legalidad del programa de alivio de la deuda en el otro caso presentado por seis estados mayoritariamente republicanos. Los jueces aceleraron ambos casos para los argumentos orales a finales de febrero o principios de marzo, con un fallo previsto para fines de junio. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Can we do, do Goldman's walk-up music?
Maybe. Talking baseball. We can, yes. Lazuski Campanella talking baseball. The man and Bobby Fella, the scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And this is actually Talking Baseball with Duke Goldman. Duke, thank you for being with us today. I really appreciate it. Boy, for being the offseason of baseball, it's been a lot. That sport, that business has been a lot in the news recently. I don't know if you want to start with the Yankees or the Red Sox or the Mets or the Padres. Let's start with the Yankees. I'll get you off in a nice foul mood talking about <laughs> the Yankees. And I always love to see you know the steam coming out of your ears. The New York Yankees are in the news this week because they just signed Aaron Judge to a nine-year, that means he'll be 40 years old at the end. We'll see how that works out. $40 million a year contract, $360 million to Aaron Judge for playing this sport, this game. Your thoughts about that, please. The man hit 62 home runs last year. I know. We're going to hear about that for a while. You know, um, I don't know that he'll hit 62 home runs this year. And that's one of the things. They paid the maximum for a player who undoubtedly had his career year. Having said that, he is the face of the franchise. He is a lifelong Yankee. He is the heart and soul of the team. And the fan base would have been just... Ballistic. Yes. So they had to re-sign him. And you know what? They had to pay him every last dollar that competitors were going to pay him. And I think Judge all along, I really thought he was going to come back. But, you know, he bet on himself. The Yankees had offered him a decent offer, but not a tremendous offer, which he turned down. And he bet on himself. And now, this was, you're talking the story about what happened before. This yeah, when they offered him, you know, a you know, 200 plus million dollar contract, which sounds like a lot to all of us, but you know, it's not 360. Now he wasn't going to get 360 then, but you know, he decided that's not enough for me and I'm good enough and I'm going to go out there and prove it. And you know what? How can you argue with that? He proved it, right? He did. Well, we'll come back to the Yankees in a minute, but while we're on the topic of teams, baseball teams playing top dollar, I'd like to turn to the question of the Boston Red Sox. You may have heard of them. They play in a place called Fenway. They have a lot of uh, really talented players, and they seem, the best of them, often seem to leave. What's your view of that? My view is, and you know what? I'm not even sure I could truly call myself a Red Sox fan anymore. Sorry sorry to admit that here in New England. What was the pain of this week? Well, the pain of this week was Xander Bogarts was signed away by the Padres. And Chaim Bloom, the general manager, seemed like he was taken by surprise. Wow, what a surprise, you know? They really didn't offer market you know, value to Bogarts along the way. Um, but this started a while ago. It started when the Red Sox let Mookie Betts go. The, uh, unlike the Yankees, who signed the face of their franchise, the Red Sox did not. So who was the next face of the franchise? It was Bogarts. After Mookie left. After Mookie left. For the Dodgers. That's right. Now, who do they have left? Rafael Devers, who's got one year left on his contract, who has already tweeted out that, you know, he misses Bogarts already, and Bogarts was, you know, his... Well, he played next to him. Yeah. In the infield. And he grew up with Bogarts as as his his mentor. And you know what? I think there's a good chance he's going to leave, too. And then who do they have left? So the Red Sox have let the players go away. Now, what have they done? Okay, they signed Masataka Yoshida. 
position player, outfielder, I believe, from Japan for five years and $90 million. What I've read is that they may have overpaid for him. He's certainly an unproven you know, entity coming as a position player from Japan. Generally, the pitchers do better. Sometimes position players succeed, but we'll see. They signed Kenley Jansen, a great closer. Having said that, a guy who is 36 years old, who had the worst year of his career last year. And they signed a couple And he's the new guys. Red Sox closer? And he's the new Red Sox closer. Uh, apparently, they're not interested in Nate Evaldi. Uh, I, I don't know what they have in their pitching staff. Nate Evaldi being the Red Sox pitcher, starting pitcher. Starting pitcher who, you know, had a couple of good years for them. Um, is Chris Sale going to be able to come back and still do something for them? Well, I think that ship has sailed. No pun intended. <laughs> well done. Well done, Duke. <laughs> you know, I don't know what they have left. Uh, they were supposedly interested in Christian Vasquez, who they traded this year. He just signed with the Twins. The cat um, catcher. Yes. And a really excellent catcher that some, yes. for some reason the Red Sox just let him go for not, no value. For no apparent reason. For no apparent reason. So I think the time and patience for Bloom's maneuvers are, are fast going away. Well, Chaim Bloom was a stars, the general manager of the uh, uh, Tampa Bay team. Uh, where he took a tiny payroll, like $40 million, competed successfully against teams with $200 million payrolls. W what's happened? I mean, the Red Sox got him so that he could bring a pennant and a World Series back to Boston. Hasn't worked out so far. I don't know if he adapted well to the different circumstances. You know, way back when, the Red Sox almost brought Billy Bean as their GM. And right at the last minute, Billy, Billy Bean, Bean decided, of the Oakland A's, Billy Bean decided not to come. He operated in a Chaim Bloom-like environment back in Tampa Bay. The Oakland environment was similar, you know, find undervalued players. And because think, you have a tiny payroll comparatively. Right. And I think he knew how to operate that way. I think that's how Bloom knew how to operate. He comes to Boston and he's in the big leagues of spending money and, you know, and building, building a big payroll and competing against teams like the Yankees. And I don't think he's adapted very well. Well, there's a certain skill set to be able to say, hi, um, uh, please uh, accept our offer here of $360 million, which was about nine times the entire payroll of Tampa Bay when Heim Bloom was there. So it is a different mindset, how much money you have, how much of the owner's money you have to pay when you're working for owners who have the money. And I, I just don't see it happening in Boston. Now, the Yankees do have issues. And the issues the Yankees have have to do with how old their position players are. Okay. All right. We're going to have a few words about aging. Go ahead, Duke. <laughs> well, what we're looking at is the Yankees re-signed Anthony Rizzo. Okay, but he's 33 years old. He didn't have a great year last year. Some power, but his batting average is down. But I'd stop there with Rizzo because this is really interesting for baseball and non-baseball fans alike. There's going to be a rule change next year. And Rizzo is a left-handed hitter. He's a strictly pull hitter. He hits the ball between first and second all the time. And they have, when he comes to bat, three players on the right side of the infield, first baseman, short, second baseman, and shortstop. And the third baseman is pretty far over towards second base because he doesn't know how to bunt. So what the heck. Um, and next year, teams are not going to be allowed to do that. Do I have that right? Yes. 
You are right. So we'll see. Maybe he will have a rebound year, but he's 33 years old. He has a lot of mileage. On the other end of the infield, you got Josh Donaldson, who will be 37 years old. And had his worst year of his yes. career last year. And it looked old and couldn't catch up to fastballs. Other than that, I was really happy with him. He's, he's, he's a very good third baseman, but he's not, he's not producing anywhere near the level he used to produce. And then, you know, in the outfield, you've got Stanton, who's 33, and I would say an old 33, nowhere near his peak. Yeah, I mean, the Yankees got him just in time to pay him a huge salary for many years to see his uh, production fall off dramatically and for being hurt most of the t- a lot of the time. And then they have Aaron Hicks, who's also 33. Some people think they will sign Benintendi. Apparently, they are going to try to sign Carlos Rodon, who uh, is an ace pitcher, but I doubt that they're going to go in on Carlos Correa at shortstop. And their shortstop is kind of a hole as well. Yeah, the shorts, the, Yankee, the Yankees are not murderers' roads. They're not the Bronx Bombers, with the exception of one person. He plays right field and occasionally center, but they don't have a team that really looks nearly as competitive as, well, some of the other teams, certainly not the elite teams of the National League. Like not the, the Mets. The Mets or the Padres. Okay, we have to spend a minute here humoring Duke and his beloved New York Mets. Let's hear how they're doing here in the uh, uh, hot stove league. Well, they they did lose Jacob deGrom. Okay, that's... let's stop there. When you say lose Jacob deGrom, just pause there for a minute. And as a devoted, lifelong Mets fan, tell us how that makes you feel, Duke. Disappointed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, good. Words we can use on air. I appreciate that. Disappointed. Yes. The best pitcher in baseball probably has just left your team, yes? Yeah, but also a pitcher who missed half of both of the last two years, who's going to be 35 years old, and who signed for five years. And the Mets decided they could use that money elsewhere. They offered a, a decent deal to DeGrom. It seems as if DeGrom may not have wanted to come back. They got Justin Verlander, admittedly soon to be 40 years old, for two years. You know, uh, a surefire Hall of Famer who apparently wants to win 300 games in his career and is all in. Uh, they picked up a guy named um, Kota Senga from Japan, who is an excellent pitcher. Uh, they re-signed Brandon Nimmo they re-signed, uh, for center field. They re-signed their ace closer, something the Yankees no longer have, Edwin Diaz. Um, so they have a pretty solid team. They picked up Jose Quintana to uh, help the rotation as well. Uh, and their position players are considerably younger than the Yankees. Okay, so stop there for one second. You point out that the New York Yankees, unlike every other team that is going to compete for a pennant and for the uh, uh, glory of winning the, the postseason, has a closer. Um, the Yankees don't. They had a spectacular closer, Aldis Chapman, and he just kind of left. He walked off the job. Can you explain to our particular non-baseball listeners saying, how does a baseball player making, I don't know, $20, $25 million a year just sign a, send a postcard or an email saying, hi, I've left, I'm gone? How does that work? It's a mystery to me. I think it's a mystery <laughs> to a lot of people. Um, maybe he's a bit of a volatile guy. Let's remember this is a guy that was, um, you know, apparently had been uh, – you know, uh, abusing uh, somebody, uh, and he got suspended for that for a period of time. Um, you know, it, 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 I think he he was angry at how he was being used, and he decided, you know, that he was going to make a statement. It's not like players haven't done that before, but the problem is he's no longer throwing 100 and 
three plus miles per hour. He's no longer the effective pitcher he once was, and the Yankees no longer have any use for him, but they have nobody to replace him currently. Well, he couldn't really pitch last year. He couldn't find the strike zone, and Araldis Chapman was a fastball pitcher, um, and he was fabulous for his career. <clears throat> but those fastball pitchers are not over. When he was throwing 100 miles an hour, he was one of the only people in baseball, one of the only pitchers who could do that. Now, every team has someone, has a number of pitchers who pitch 100 miles an hour all the time. Duke, you're nodding. Well, I, what I would say is that uh, he he lacks control. He could get away with that when when all of his pitches were lights out. Now that he's losing some of that you know, mojo, he's no longer effective. Okay. We're going to take a quick break. Back more with Duke Goldman talking baseball with the Duke right after this. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. 586-1000. Good phone number, right? It's the number Whalen Insurance got when we opened in 1961. It's still our number more than 60 years later. If you need an insurance quote or have a claim, just call 586-1000. We answer the phone, ready to help. That's our pledge to you, until now. Now when you call, we'll answer, and if it's something clerical or routine, like an address change, we're going to transfer you to the Arbella Insurance Call Center in Quincy. You'll be connected with a real person there, too. You won't be entering your policy number on the dial pad. The Arbella Call Center. I told myself Whalen Insurance would never do this, but insurance agent friends all over New England tell me it actually works really well. So we're going to try it. And if it doesn't work well, I'm sure you'll let us know by calling 586-1000. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. In partnership with Arbella Insurance. I once had a customer who asked us to make a very special fruit basket. I want 25 pounds of bananas, he said, with a note attached that reads, I'm bananas over you. Will you marry me? You know, I've always wondered about their wedding cake. At State Street Market, we make fruit baskets. Of course we do. But just because it's a basket doesn't mean you've got to fill it with fruit. How about a basket filled with what, soda pop or microbrews? There are Chardonnay baskets, Merlot, Shiraz. Give us a price range and we'll fetch you a combination of bottles from the wine cellar that'll make someone dizzy with delight. Oh, we do baskets. Local goat cheeses and six kinds of crackers. Cookie baskets based on the cities of the world. Milano, Brussels. We've even put together the ingredients for the perfect minestrone. The fresh vegetables, the spice jar, the pasta. Hey, if you can dream it, State Street can put it in a basket. State Street Deli, State Street Fruit, State Street Wines and Spirits, Northampton. Delivery, too. The holidays. Baking, wrapping, decorating, and of course, shopping for that special gift. Hi, it's Jessica, owner of Fitness Together in Amherst and Northampton. This holiday season, consider giving a private one-on-one personal training session with a Fitness Together gift card. Stop by our locations, Amherst or Northampton, to pick one up in person. Or give us a call and we'll drop one in the mail. Give a gift that keeps the ones you love fit and healthy. Happy holidays from all of us at Fitness Together. Looking for the perfect place to watch the game? Hi, I'm Caleb Hiliadis, head brewer of Amherst Brewing. Make the Hangar Pub and Grill your go-to spot to catch all the action this season. Our famous wings come with your choice of 26 flavors, and with 25 years of beer making experience, there's an Amherst Brewing beer for every drinker. Now that's a winning combo. Join us for weekly trivia nights in Amherst, Westfield, Agawam, South Hadley, and Greenfield. Visit hangarpub.com for more of what we have cooking and brewing today. 
This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Duke Goldman. Duke Goldman is a Northampton-based shining light at Sabre, the Society of American Baseball Research. He is an author of many articles and books, an editor as well of books about baseball, and is a baseball historian and a fan. So here's what I got for you now, Duke. I want to know the Padres, uh, competitors with your beloved New York Mets, uh, are spending, I don't know how to make this other than cliche, boatloads, and I mean boatloads of money. <clears throat> is this the future? The, the, the rich get richer and buy the, and buy, try to buy the World Series? I think so, because baseball is a wash in money. Their revenues are up, you know? It, you, you hear all the time that the sport is no longer very popular, but you know what? The money is there, the merch is there, the streaming is there, the revenue stream is big. And there's still fan bases that want to win, that are spending money, you know, to win. And the Padres are one of them. The Padres have a beautiful jewel of a stadium. I've been there. It's really lovely. Um, it's a great community. And they have not won a World Series yet in their existence. They picked up Juan Soto last year. He did not have a great year, but he's a phenomenal outfielder, phenomenal hitter. And now they've added Xander Bogarts, who is, and he will we'll have to see, he may well be affected by the uh, change in shifts. He was apparently playing deep uh, and improving his range, but now he won't be able to do that. In that the is to say way. he played out on the gra- outfield Correct. grass, and he can't yes. do that. The new rule is you have to have your feet right. on, the on the infield dirt. So his, his defense may not be as good, but his offense is tremendous for for a middle infielder. Um, San Diego is a very, very strong team, and they're going to be tough. And they did a lot more than the Dodgers did. What about Philadelphia? Philadelphia picked up Trey Turner. Philadelphia, you should point out, for our non-baseball fan listeners, was in the World Series. Correct. And, you know, they... Somehow. Somehow, they didn't have a great regular season, but as we know, the postseason is a different environment, and they succeeded at it. Uh, Bryce Harper is still... uh, Had Tommy John surgery and is going to have to be the designated hitter next year, but they picked up Trey Turner, who is arguably one of the best middle infielders, one of the fastest people in the game. Um, They have a very strong team. That was one of the big signings. It'll be interesting to see who will get Carlos Correa, the other great shortstop who was out there on the marketplace. Um, Carlos Rodon, um, we'll see if the Yankees are able to sign him. And then there's Dansby Swanson, and uh, he's uh, another middle infielder for the Braves. And if the Braves don't sign him, they will have a big hole. Okay. So we've uh, seen how Philadelphia and San Diego, the Padres and the Mets have all improved their teams. Um, But you seem to be saying, Duke, that the Yankees and the Red Sox among the teams who are seeking improvement and doing a lot to make their fans happy in this offseason, we wouldn't include them in that list. So where does that leave? uh, What what are we going to talk about if the Yankees and the Red Sox both stink next year? (laughs) I don't think the Yankees, let's face it, the Yankees are not going to stink. Okay. There you go. A concession will mark the time, <laughs> the date and time. When, okay. Go ahead. The Yankees are still going to be competitive. They just, but are they going to be better than the Astros, who swept them in four games in the playoffs, who have, you know, tremendous talent, who are much younger in their position players, um, who have a very strong bullpen, uh, who just added Jose Abreu, who's who's old, who's thirty six years old, but is still a very potent hitter. Um, the Yankees have to do more, and they haven't really done it. The Red Sox, I don't think the Red Sox are all that competitive unless they surprise us. And are they just being cheap? 
By baseball standards, I mean, really, I mean... If- I think they're a mystery to so many of us. None of us know exactly what their plan is here. They, they have a semi-decent um, prospect base right now. They have a guy named Tristan Casas who's coming up uh, at first base. Through, through the Red Sox system? Through the Red Sox system. They have a guy named Marcelo Meyer in middle infield, shortstop, who's supposed to be very good. But I don't know that they're quite ready. Um, so I think... Again, uh, Chaim Bloom's mindset is we build for the future. The Red Sox fans believe that the future is now, and I don't really think it is at this point. Do you see the, the Red Sox continuing essentially to sell out Fenway Park? Do you think that, I mean, I'm actually dead serious about this. I mean, uh, there's a lot of time, energy, and effort that goes into talking about the Red Sox. Um, and I would think that this up and down. We won. We won the World Series. Now we're in last place the next year. And then we win the World Series. And then we're in last place again. I mean, this kind of yo-yoing of the fans can't be, can't be psychologically healthy and probably doesn't build loyalty. Well, yes, but the yo-yoing is not nearly as bad as we're not good year after year. <laughs> and they weren't good last year. And if they're not good again this year, then maybe in 2024, they may not be selling out Fenway. I think the fan base has a limited amount of patience, and they're beginning to become very impatient with this team. I could swear you were sounding like someone commenting on the New York Yankees, um, who, when they lose, in fact, for any significant stretch, uh, the fan base has lots to say, and so do the New York papers, and you see editorials and what's going to happen, and it's a crisis in the psyche of New York Yankees fans. Uh, Red Sox? Yes, similar. See, Bill, you're forgetting something here. Dan Torres, Dan yes. Torres, yes. The, the, since the turn of the century, the Red Sox have begun to actually accumulate some World Series titles. So, you know, I just, I just some championships. And unlike other teams that have been just destined to be stuck in the 20th century, it's a struggle, you know, to figure things out. So I, I just want to kind of relay, I think the fans are a little fat and happy. Sorry, do you want to add to that, Duke? I, I don't know if they're fat and happy, but they've, they've won four World Series in the time that the Yankees have won one. So, you know, they, they now do expect to win, much like Yankee fan base, and yes. the Red Sox are not getting it yes. for them at this point. So I think there is limited time left for them to be competitive. We've been talking baseball with the Duke, Duke Goldman. Thank you, Duke. Talking baseball, Klazuski Campanella talking baseball. The man and Bobby Feller, the scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Do you know what's going on in business in Western Mass? You do if you read Business West. Find out which companies are growing, which companies are innovating. Learn about people on the move, people taking the lead. Every issue of Business West is packed with business news, including incorporations, building permits, real estate transactions, and bankruptcies. Pick up a copy or read Business West online. The vital business news is in Business West, the business journal of Western Mass. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Voting as well as early voting is the way to go. It shows that we trust the voters. They know why they need an early ballot. They know why they need an absentee ballot. It's not up to government Live to decide. News and talk for Northampton and the Valley the since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. A Northampton Radio Group station.